Good morning. Trust you've enjoyed and have been edified by the, the service so far and looking forward to getting into the book of Colossians. Only, only a couple weeks left this week, and then Lord willing, uh, the Lord allows us to meet together again next week. We will wrap up our series in the book of Colossians. So if you have a Bible, you can make your way there. Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. Now before we get into our passage in Colossians chapter 4, I want to take just a minute just to, just to, to, bring, us, to bring us where we're at. Where, how did we get here? Where have we been? Well, remember, Paul started um, the, this book in chapter 1, verses 3 through 8, by expressing thankfulness to God that the worldwide gospel had come to the Colossians and they believed it. And that led him into the next passage we looked at in chapter uh, 1, verses 9 through 14. And Paul shares how now that they've believed the gospel, he's praying that they would grow in the gospel. That they would have knowledge of God's will. And they would have spiritual wisdom and they'd grow in maturity in Jesus Christ. And then he goes right into, in, in chapter 1, verses 15, he goes right into, well, who is this Jesus? Who's, here's who this Jesus is. He's the preeminent one. He's the one who should have first place in everything. And then he goes into his ministry in, in verse 24 through chapter 2 through 5. And he says, this is my ministry. This is who I'm all about proclaiming. I want everybody to know Jesus. And I want everybody to mature and to grow in him. And then in chapter 2 verse 6 and the rest of chapter 2, remember he gives us those warnings. He says, now I want everybody to mature in Jesus Christ. That's what I'm struggling for. That's what I'm toiling for. But there are philosophies, religions, and disciplines out there that are going to try to get you to try to, try to attain some sort of spiritual maturity apart from Christ. And so he warns them about that. And then the question is, well then how do I grow in Christ? And that's what happens in chapter 3. Where Paul says, what is really needed is for your minds to be preoccupied with Jesus. To put to death what is earthly, to put on what is heavenly, to immerse yourself and allow the word of God dwell in you richly, and to be thankful. That's the essence of Christian life. That's how you grow to spiritual maturity. And then we look at chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 18, through chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul says, all of this that we've been talking about has immediate implication and application in your family life. That is how you live as a family member or a member of society. Whether you're a husband, a father, a wife, a mother, a child, a master, or a slave, your identity in Jesus Christ should be the sole motivation for your life. And that's what brings us to this passage. Because Paul is now going to say, but it doesn't just... The gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't just affect how you live as a Christian in a family or a Christian in a church, but it also affects, and your identity in Christ has implications on how you live towards outsiders. And that's what brings us to Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2 and reading through verse 6. Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2, where he says, Continue steadfastly in prayer. Being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word. To declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. That I, make it, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt 
so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Christianity is evangelistic. We are, we are to plea with people, be reconciled to God. You remember that passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Be reconciled to God. And as we start, I ask you the question, have you been reconciled to God? Do you have peace with God? True peace with the God of the universe. Jesus died on the cross to cancel sin's debt. Anyone who believes in Jesus, it's promised to you that your sins will be forgiven because your sins will have been paid for on the cross. The sin debt will be removed and you will have peace with God. If you don't have peace with God, he invites you to trust in Christ today and have your sins forgiven. But this life, this Christian life, is an evangelistic life. Perhaps this happened several years ago, but perhaps you're familiar with it. Um, there was a video posted by Penn Gillette. If you know who Penn Gillette is, he's, he's the verbal half of the magician duo Penn and Teller. Um, and he's an outspoken atheist. You can even see it in some of his shows. Several years ago, he posted a video on YouTube uh, about a guy who came, uh, a Christian who came up to him after one of his shows and began to share the gospel with him. And in this video, that he, he posted the video after he, after he got back home and was, was reflecting on this guy who would come up to share his faith. And in this video, although he still hates Christianity and hates the Bible and hates God to this very day, Here's what he said in this video. He says he doesn't respect people who don't proselytize. That's the word he used. We would use the word evangelism or share the gospel. Here, I quote, he says, I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that it's not really worth telling them because it would make it socially awkward, and he would go on to say, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that, end quote. As Christians, we can learn a lot from an atheist. We can learn a lot from a guy who hates Jesus and hates the Bible. As we come to this passage, if you notice all the material that thus far in Colossians has been inward focused. It's how, it's how we live, uh, how Christ dwells in us and our relationships within the church community. But now the focus is turning, is turning outward. Now Paul is talking about evangelism. Now he's talking about the, the Christian community's relationship with outsiders. If you got the flow of the book, you can kind of notice something here. Paul starts with them knowing Jesus, right? And he even says, I want you to be filled with the knowledge of his will. And then he moves into growing in Jesus. I want you to be mature in Jesus. I want you to be careful of these false teachings. I want you to put on the godly things. And then he says, I want you to show Jesus to others. Okay, it's the know, grow, show of the Christian life. Know Jesus, grow in Jesus, and then show Jesus. Know, grow, show. Where are you at in that? Where are you at on that know, grow, and show? Do you know Jesus? If you know Jesus, are you growing in him? Are you growing in maturity? If you have grown on in maturity, and maybe you know a lot of Bible, and you know, you know how this Christian life should be lived, are you showing Jesus to others? 
Because knowing is important, but it can't stop there. Paul didn't want the church to just be a doctrinally sound church. In the resisting the false teaching, which obviously he talks about, resist the false, false teaching with true doctrine of Jesus Christ. In your resisting, don't lose sight of the mission. That you must reach out to your fellow citizens with the gospel. That your attitude towards outsiders should not be fear or bitterness or hatred, but it should be a love and a compassion to share, the, share Christ with them. And we must have both. At Calvary Baptist Church, we must resist false teaching. We must stand against it. And that's in part what's going to happen this summer at ABF. But we also must reach out to our fellow citizens with the gospel. And this is a principle well found in scripture, especially the New Testament. A church with solid doctrine without evangelism is a dying church. A church with solid doctrine without evangelism is a dying church. It doesn't matter how many people attend. It doesn't matter how much theological knowledge is in that church. Any church in which the people don't share Christ is a dying church. I get this mainly from uh, Revelation chapter 2. Remember the, the, the letters that Jesus sends to the churches? Do you remember what he wrote to the, to the church in Ephesus? How he wrote in there, and already he says, I know your works. You toil, and you, you have patient endurance. And he says, and you cannot bear with those who are evil. It's like you hate sin so much, you just can't even bear sin. He says, you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, but found them to be, here's the word, false. You're good at hating sin and standing up against false doctrine. He says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. It's like they haven't given up. With all the pressure from society, with all the pressure of other churches giving in to false doctrine, this church was standing strong. But then he says this, but I have this against you. Remember what he says, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, what does that mean? I would argue this church and the love that they had for Jesus at one point which was a love for each other and a love for society, a love for Christ, had come into this sort of inward focused, taking a stand on doctrine but not sharing Christ. At least as part of one of the parts of their having abandoned the love that they had at first. Remember, therefore, Jesus says, where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand. Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I am not afraid to close down a church just because, you know, if, if all they have is sound doctrine and nothing else, I'm not afraid to close it down. This is Jesus. This is Jesus saying, you've got all the right doctrine, you're standing against sin, you hate sin. But there's something so lacking. There's that outworking of theology that's lacking in your presence. I'm going to come and close your church. And Paul is starting with God's worldwide program of the gospel, and he's getting it down to the Colossians. How can the Colossian church get involved? More than that, he's getting it down to us. How can Calvary Baptist Church in 2021 get involved? And so I want to look at this morning... Just a note here on your bulletin, I, things have changed. We're doing, Paul gives us three admonitions as it relates to evangelism. You can cross out the second point, it's no longer there. 
Uh, we have one, two, and three. So whether he's referring to himself or to the church, Paul gives us three admonitions as it relates to evangelism. Number one, verses two through four, we must be devoted to prayer. We must be devoted to prayer. Now, Paul in this first couple verses here of our passage, verses 2 and 3, he gives, what should prayer look like? He says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Be watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door for the word. To us a door for the word. To declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. That I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So what should our prayer life look like? Well, number one, we should be devoted. We should be devoted. This, this means that we need to be in a habit of praying. Uh, we're reminded of the verse, aren't we, in, in, uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where Paul says, pray without ceasing. Now, what are, what are some things you do without ceasing? What are things you do in your life where you say, it basically never stops? Worry? Anxiety? Gossip? Complaining? Wrath, endless social media or entertainment, bitterness. What is something you say, I do this without ceasing? Is prayer one of those things? God wants us to hold fast to prayer and not let go. Like the, like the widow and the parable he told of the persistent widow in Luke chapter 18. We won't take the time to turn there. Verses 1 through 8. This widow kept coming to God, coming to, the, coming to the judge, which is a picture of God, again and again and again and again. So this is opposite. So what he's saying here, devoted to prayer, this is opposite than I pray every now and then. But it's persistent. It's there. So he says it should be devoted. We should be watchful. That's the second. What, what, describing our prayer life. It should be devoted. It should be watchful. We're to be alert to the return of Christ. Alert to the times in which we live. Alert to certain needs, alert to how God is working, alert to open doors, alert to what we should be praying for. What he's saying here when he says watchful literally means to be alert. He's saying there should be, there should be some fire in our prayers. There should be a burden. There must be a willingness even to wrestle with God. So often we pray routine general prayers that lack any sort of specificity. They can be quick, thoughtless, and ultimately they're ineffective. And here he's saying be watchful, be alert, be specific. So what does that do with evangelism? I think what that means when it comes to evangelism, we ought to pray to God for people to be saved as if they're going to go to hell tomorrow. That's what that means. That we get our list of names and we pray as if tomorrow their life will end and their hell will begin. Be alert, be awake. It reminds us of the disciples, doesn't it, in the garden where they were sleeping when they should have been praying and alert and awake. So our prayer lives must be devoted to praying for the lost. We must, must be watchful. We must be thankful Thankful, again, we've, we've seen this back in verse 17 of chapter 3, giving thanks. Uh, in verse 15 of chapter 3, be thankful. Right, it's thankful, thankful, thankful. He's constantly telling us to be thankful. 
I mean, this is, th- thankfulness is true appreciation for the spiritual blessings we have in Christ. We're dead to the world. We're alive in Christ. We've been raised with him. We're destined for glory. All of our sins are forgiven. What this means when it comes to our prayer lives and when it comes to evangelism, at least thankfulness is a concern of evangelism, we should be so thankful. We should be so thankful for that moment when God opened our eyes to see the truth and the beauty of the gospel that we believed it. We should be so thankful for that moment that we want others to experience the same thing. Do we want others to experience the salvation we've experienced? Do we? Do we really look at our salvation and say, it's so great, every person I know should experience it? Ask yourself, as I've asked myself, as I studied and prepared this sermon, do I find myself, uh, my, my salvation so astonishing that I want others to experience it? If we aren't thankful for it, we won't talk about it. There's those there's older Gatorade commercials. If if you remember those, they have they have the athletes up there and they're they're working out on the treadmill or they're playing out on the field. They're you know, they're working really hard. And as the camera as the camera zooms in to the athletes, you realize that that they're 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 sweating droplets of Gatorade. And so as you get closer, you start to see red and yellow and orange droplets of sweat pouring from their bodies. And the commercial ends with the question, "Is it in you?" Is it in you? You know, the idea there being their performance and their athleticism and their, you know, endurance comes because they drank this Gatorade and that's what's pouring out of them. That's the same, that's the same thing should be for us, except not with Gatorade. Uh, ours should be the gospel. And specifically, thankfulness for the blessings that we have in the gospel. That should be, that should be coming out of us. Is thankfulness in you. Thanklessness is the root of so many arrogant attitudes. So we ought to pray. We should lay hold of all opportunities for prayer. We should choose times that are free from distraction. Our minds should be engaged and alert. Anybody ever fallen asleep while they've been praying before? I'll be the first to admit. Okay, so now you can feel better. Uh, All of this should be done in thanksgiving, in appreciation of the mercies received. That's how we should pray. Now I want you to notice in this passage what Paul prays for. He prays for open doors. We use that phrase a lot, uh, but he prays for an open door. That is an opportunity for evangelistic ministry, an opportunity to share the gospel. It's a door that allows the word of God to enter the hearts of communities. Paul uses this phrase in Acts 14, 1 Corinthians 16, and 2 Corinthians 2. Now, in all those circumstances, this, this kind of spectacular opportunity to share the gospel opened up. There's this unusual blessing and fruitfulness for the word of God. So, he's here praying for open doors. Why do we pray for open doors? Well, we pray for open doors because God is the one who opens them. Not us. We don't, we don't open anybody's door. We can't open the door to anybody's heart. It doesn't matter how great our personality is, how smart we are, you know, whatever it is. We, we, it's not on us to open doors. So it's on God. And we pray for open doors because the first key to unlocking the door of the radical effectiveness of the gospel is prayer. Notice what else he prayed for. Not only an open door, but he prayed for clarity and boldness. The Apostle Paul... Praying for clarity and boldness? 
that the Bible is not filled with a bunch of people who are beyond needing help. Right? The, Bible, the, the people in the Bible that were esteemed the highest were what? They were weak. They were fully dependent upon God. And Paul is asking for prayer, for open doors, and for boldness and clarity. And we ought to pray that for ourselves. We ought to pray that when we take the gospel upon our lips, that it would go forth in a clear and powerful way. Now I want you to notice specifically here, when he prays for an open door in verse 3. Notice what he says, that he may open to us a door for what? For the word. For the word. Paul prayed that the word would be given entrance because it's the word that changes lives. It's the word of God that changes people. We know that from Romans chapter 10. They got to hear the word. So in all this, it's God. It's God. It's God who prepares the way for his message. It's God who provides us the opportunity. It's God who softens the heart. It's God who removes the blinders that are on the heart. It's God who awakens the soul. It's God who makes new life. It's God who gives new birth. It's God, it's God, it's God. That means we can have confidence in sharing the gospel because it does not depend on me to do anything other to take those opportunities, take the word of God, and give him something that's already prepackaged for me. A lot of us have big issues of the sovereignty of God and, and salvation. Well, if God has chosen those who would be saved, why share the gospel? It's very simple why we share the gospel. because God tells us to. Because God tells us to. You need no other explanation. I need no other explanation than that. But isn't that what gives us confidence? Like, it's not on me. God's going to do all the work. God knows who he has chosen. God knows who he's going to call. God knows who he's going to awaken. God knows who he's going to save. I don't, but I do know that God has called me to share Christ. It depends wholly on God to save sinners, not on us. Not on us. Paul's in prison. Do you notice that as we get ready to move to the next one here? Paul's in prison. He says, I'm, on account of which I'm in prison. Imprisonment didn't end Paul's ministry. Because, you know why? Because imprisonment didn't stop God from saving people. Paul is praying for open doors even though people are trying to close them. And see, we can look at, we can look at the world today and be like, man, everywhere we turn, doors are being closed. The government's trying to close doors. This unbelieving world is trying to close doors. Churches even are trying to close doors to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. We can say, man, the philosophy and the understanding, the ignorance of unbelievers, just everything seems like a closed door. But that's, just, that's not it. We titled the message, The Door is Open, because the door is open. God will open doors, even when people try to close them. Now, they might be closed on you when you go share the gospel. Praise God, move on. This is what uh, Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, where he says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. doesn't matter who the president is, the king is, what the government's doing, they can never, ever, 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 ever bind the word of God. Can I get an Amen. Paul saw the human setbacks as divine setups, and he went at it. Doors open to us to share the gospel. We must take them. We must speak clearly. We must be bold. 
We must be devoted to prayer, praying for these things. There's a second thing we need to look at, and it's found in verse 5. So these, these three admonitions, be devoted to prayer, and number two, be distinguished in our walk. We must be devoted to prayer, and number two, we must be distinguished in our walk. When it says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. What does that mean? What does it mean to walk in wisdom towards outsiders? I'll give you a couple of thoughts here. One, it means that a wise way for a Christian to live is to have the goal of winning people to Jesus. So a wise way for a Christian to live is to have the goal of winning people to Jesus. So Proverbs chapter 11, verse 30 says this. It says, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. And whoever captures souls, or some translations say, whoever wins souls. We talk about soul winning. That's where it comes from. Whoever captures souls is wise. It's a very wise thing for you to do. It's a very wise thing for me to do, to go capture souls, to win souls. A wise life is a life that bears godly fruit. It takes what we know about God, who God is, what God expects, what God has done, and it applies it to our day-to-day lives. That sort of life is attractive and wins souls. It also means that we're to govern our lives around unbelievers on the basis of biblical wisdom. Yeah, that is to say, we seek to live out our identity in Christ no matter what circumstance or situation we're in. So Christians who live apart from Christ are going to cause the unbelieving world to shun the gospel. Christians who love money, or sex, or popularity, or power, or affirmation, or fame, or legalism, or whatever, or acceptance, more than they love Jesus will turn away unbelievers. There's a very interesting article written uh, not too long ago, within the past couple months, by Russell Moore. Uh, He's kind of in the political realm for the Southern Baptist Convention. But he wrote an article recently reflecting on uh, some statistics that are different. So, for example, in today's America, 47% of adults would say they're members of a church. 20 years ago, that number was 68%. So 20 years ago, 68% of American adults say, I'm a member of a church, now it's 47%. And here's, here's his observation on why that is. He says, the problem now is not that people think the church's way of life is too demanding, too morally rigorous, but that they have come to think the church doesn't believe its own moral teachings. He goes on to say, we are losing a generation, not because they are secularists, but because they believe we are, end quote. Which brings me to this observation from Warren Rearsby. Nothing will silence the lips like a careless life. Nothing will silence the lips that speak the gospel like a careless life. Nothing will cancel your words. We're living in cancel culture, aren't we? We're trying to figure out who to cancel because of what they stood on. Well, there's a cancel culture going on in the church. And it's where we're canceling out ourselves. Because we proclaim to know Jesus... But we live carelessly. This passage is saying Christians should not give the world reason to criticize the behavior of the church. If unbelievers look at you, they look at me, 
And they think, that guy says he has Jesus, but he's just as much looking for hope and satisfaction as I am. Look at this Jesus, he proclaims. Our legitimacy is gone. To say, I have Jesus, but pursue the money and the affirmation, the praise and the power, is to tell the world, I have Jesus, but he's not enough. To say, I have Jesus, and live like that, he's not enough. Instead, we ought to be content, thankful, joyful, peaceable. We should do good work, pay our bills, live honestly. Or we can't think, man, if you become a Christian, you become this angry, grumpy, arrogant, lazy, unproductive bum. If that's what people think about Christianity, then say say all you want about the gospel, your usefulness for Jesus Christ is gone. My usefulness for Jesus Christ is gone. If my neighbors look over at me and they say, man, that guy's a pastor, he supposedly knows Jesus, yeah, he is the grumpiest, most angry, arrogant, lazy, unproductive man in our neighborhood. Usefulness for the gospel, gone. Notice here the second half of the verse, a distinguished walk makes the best use of the time. Uh, The word literally means the buy-up. If you have a King James Version, it may say redeeming the time. It's the idea. So a wise way to, to live is to use the short time God has given us to its best effect. So to make the most of open doors, okay, to, to literally, it means to buy up the time, the, the moment you get the time, buy it up, okay, this is, this is, just take your, take your attitude, I shouldn't say your attitude, take some people's attitude towards the ammunition shortage, okay, what happens, immediately a box of ammo hits the shelf, right, there's a flock of rednecks just waiting, just waiting, you know, they're asking, when's the pallet coming out, when are these shelves going to be stocked, and it's like birds collapsing on, you know, breadcrumbs, like they've been starving their whole life, I made some of you mad, don't, never mind. So, that's it, buy it up. Buy it up as much as you want to buy up the ammo. Buy up the opportunities with your neighbors, with your coworkers, with your unsaved friends and family. Buy up the opportunities to pray for them. Buy up the opportunities to share the gospel with them. Every opportunity to share the gospel should be snatched up with eagerness. Do all the good you can to unbelievers, and as God opens the door, tell them of the Savior. Just yesterday, I was at a a store up in Iowa City, um, and uh, and I guess the backstory is on Friday, we had a pastor's meeting, uh, State Pastors Fellowship, and uh, one of the topics of discussion was the LBTQ movement and the church's response to it and all this stuff, and... and, uh, me, uh, Pastor Matt, and Pastor Kyle on the way back, we're, we're just talking about, you know, it can be easy for us to just become this us against them sort of mentality and not have any sort of love for them. Well, sure enough, the next day I enter the store and the person that comes and helps me out is someone who's obviously in the LGBTQ community. And as I was following this person, as they were going to help me uh, get, a, get a new uh, suit jacket, don't you like my new suit jacket? Uh, <laughs> why didn't you wear it today? Uh, um, was very obviously, and I remember almost physically rolling my eyes and saying, are you kidding me? And almost just as quickly thinking that we just got done having this conversation, and I just got done studying this passage. 
that says it's not in us against them. That we have to walk in wisdom. And immediately, that sin, I confessed it, and I treated that person just like I would treat anybody else who would help me in that situation. I was thankful. I was conversive. And that's what God is calling us to do. I didn't, there wasn't a door there to share the gospel. I didn't lay out for them how they need to be saved or how, they can, how Jesus can change his life. That's, it's, it's that. Make the best use of it. It's like God, God has given us opportunities and saying, here, make something of it. Make something of it. Make something of your neighbors. We need to move on to the third one. Admonitions, three admonitions. We must be devoted to prayer, distinguished in our walk, and last, we must be discerning in our response. Verse six, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Our speech, our dialogue, our talking should be gracious. Right? Whether, whether it's a normal conversation or sharing the gospel, Speak the truth in love. We administer grace to the hearers. That's Ephesians chapter 4. We season it with salt. There should be flavor. There should be purity. You know, when you, when you have a lot of salt, what's it do? It makes you thirsty. Um, you know, we sing this song. I love to tell this story. It seems like, because there's a phrase in there that says, there's, there's those who seem like they, they want it. They want to hear more of it. That's our talk. It should, it should leave people thirsty. It should leave them longing for something more. Our speech should be gracious. We should be saying the right things in the right manner. How we present the gospel matters. And usually, if, we're, if you're having somebody over for dinner, maybe it's, it's a nice time. I mean, you go out of your way maybe for a special dinner, and if you're going to go make this special dinner, you're probably going to make something you know tastes good, don't you? You're probably not going to try a new recipe. Sometimes you might, but normally you're saying, I know what tastes good, so this is what I'm going to go with. Well, that's, that's kind of the idea of the gospel. The gospel is, I know how good this tastes, and I'm going to serve it in a way that's tasteful. I'm going to serve it in a way that could, be, that could be eaten and enjoyed, that could be savored. So to put that story another way, if we seem bored with the gospel, then no one will want it. Evangelism should be interesting and lively. It should be charm, our words, our attitudes, our tone. If they're bland and boring, then those hearing will wonder if we really believe what we are saying. And it starts with, remember, just like the illustration of making a meal, it starts with savoring Christ ourselves. We're to know how to answer each person this is what you, the well-known passage in 1 Peter chapter 3, where he says, But in your, in your hearts, honor or sanctify Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Okay, we're expected to be able to hold our own against the questions that may come at us when it comes to the gospel. And we have to do it with love and grace. Now I want you to notice the emphasis on individual encounters. Okay, because 99.9% of Christians will not have a ministry like Billy Graham, George Whitfield, Charles Spurgeon. It's not going to happen. Most of the church will grow through individual conversations. Most of our conversations about the gospel will happen at one moment with one purpose, 
uh, with one person, with their own set of objections, with their own set of questions, with their own set of ignorances, with their own set of uncertainties. And we have to address those. Now listen, the gospel is the same no matter what, no matter, no matter the conversation, it is the same. But how we present it changes, doesn't it? So for example, my, my conversation of sharing the gospel with an atheist differs very much from the conversation I have with somebody who maybe is aware of God or grew up in the church or maybe has some sort of, of yearning or longing for God and the truth. It's going to look different. And you say, well, how do I know, how do I know what I'm going to answer? Well, start like 1 Peter 3 says. You start with sanctifying Christ, the Lord is holy. You start with Christ in your own heart, savoring him. And then you look for natural ways to share the gospel. Look for natural ways to share the gospel. You're sitting down with somebody. I remember one time uh, back in Clearing, we had some people over and praying for a natural way to share the gospel. And this guy brought up that he was... He had been arrested and gotten into trouble and was convicted of some stuff. And I said, that's, the, that's right there. You know, he's waiting for my response. And while not downplaying whatever he did, what's the truth of, the, what's the fact of the matter? We're all convicts. We've all rebelled against the authority who is God. So look for natural ways to share the gospel. Pray for them and take those doors when they open up. Be gracious. Don't win an argument but lose the person. Most of Christianity that happens on Facebook is looking to win an argument, not win a person. That just came to mind, so if that offended you, I'm sorry I didn't think through that. But most of what happens on the internet is let's win an argument, not win the person. Must love the person. And if today's look at God's word causes you to dive more deeply into the gospel if it causes you to savor Jesus more deeply, if it causes you to pray more earnestly for open doors to share the gospel, then I believe that God's word has accomplished its intended purpose for Calvary Baptist Church 2021. If it shows you your need for Jesus, then the invitation is always open. But for all of us, In times of the church, there's time to go back to that basic principle of what we need to be doing and getting a wake-up call. So for all of us, let's be devoted in praying for the lost. Let's be distinguished in our walk among outsiders. And let's be discerning in how we answer questions and how we engage the lost for the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, that's what we pray. Lord, I pray that that through through your word, as you've, you've even caused it and convicted me in so many ways in my own heart. Lord, uh, I pray that you would lead us to a deeper love or maybe a deeper yearning to know more of the gospel. Not that there's anything addition to the gospel, but to know it more fully, to savor it, to savor Jesus. Lord, may you use your word today to drive us to eager, persistent prayer for the lost that they may be saved. And Lord, on the way as we do that, would you provide for us open doors? All for your glory. That Calvary Baptist Church might be a soul-winning church. In Jesus' name, amen.